Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a new podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the week's biggest political stories with fellow Politics Home reporters and special guests from across Westminster. I'm joined this week by Politics Home's new political editor, Adam Payne, and our political reporter, Eleanor Langford. And we'll be talking about the ongoing situation in Ukraine and the fact that more than 100,000 Brits have offered to open their homes to refugees. The release of Nazanin Zakari Rakhla from Iran after six years, Boris Johnson's trip to Saudi Arabia to try and avert the cost of the energy crisis, or as he puts it, trying to wean the world off Russian hydrocarbons. I'll also be talking to Labour's Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury, Pat McFadden, about next week's spring statement, where Chancellor Rishi Sunak is under huge pressure from both sides of the House to pull a rabbit out of the hat that might ease the cost of living crisis. But we're going to start with that rare piece of good news in what's been a terrible month so far, the news that Nazanin Zakhari Ratcliffe was released from Iran. Just hours before we record this, she landed back in the UK and was reunited with her family, husband Richard and daughter Gabriella. Adam, we'll start with you. How do we get to this point? What changed, you think, in the past few months that meant this deal could be done? Well, Nazanin had been detained in Iran for six years, accused of trying to overthrow the regime there and successive foreign secretaries including the current Prime Minister Boris Johnson, tried and failed to secure her freedom. The disagreement, or or at least the crux of the disagreement between the two countries, dates back to the 1970s, when in the early 70s, the Iranian government at the time ordered tanks and military vehicles from the UK government. However, due to the Iranian revolution later in the decade, in 1979, The UK government didn't want to deal with this post-revolution new regime, so didn't fulfil the order, essentially. Ever since then, Iran has said, well, we want our money back. And that has been the source of many tensions, I guess, between UK and Iran for decades. So what's happened in, in the last few days and weeks is the UK government has paid the debt, which is up to 400 million that essentially unlocked this impasse over British Iranian nationals who were detained in Iran and allowed Nazanin to, as we saw, return to the UK in the early hours of Thursday morning. Yeah, and what's interesting about that is that the government for a long time has admitted that they owe this money and uh, successive ministers have said that they are willing to pay the money, including the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace two years ago said that the, the UK was willing and able to pay that money. It seems as though various number of sanctions are the reason that they were unable to do so. It does seem as though obviously through these kind of intense negotiations in the past few weeks, that has been unlocked. And we heard a bit more about that from the current Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, about that. And so, Ellie, you wrote about this uh, yesterday. What does seem to be the thing which has uh, unlocked this and allowed the money to be paid when for so long um, it didn't seem as though there was going to be a way through this impasse? So Liz Truss started working on this not long after she actually became Foreign Secretary. She said that she sent negotiating teams out there in October to start the conversations. And you mentioned the sanctions. That has definitely made the regime a lot more open to having conversations with the UK but also there has been a change of regime in Tehran and this new regime is much more keen to have positive relationships with the West. Liz Truss has also been working very close with the state of a man and using them to kind of facilitate this relationship and these conversations and ultimately it was via that relationship with a man and the negotiators that have been out there since October that they managed to reach a deal. So the 400 million has now been paid and that has been ring-fenced only for the purchase of humanitarian goods. And so that gets the UK around the legal obligations it has in keeping to the the sanctions and also not funding a regime it may not uh, agree with. And so that's how she's finally got to this point 
paid off the debt and got Nazanin and the others out of prison. I think what's interesting about that, Ellie, is that obviously Liz Truss is the person who is currently in charge in, in the Foreign Office and has been able to do it, while, where previous Foreign Secretaries haven't been able to. You know, she's been quick to sort of praise the negotiating teams, and there's lots of praise for Tulip Sadiq, who is Nazanin's local MP, for being able to help. But clearly, this has happened under Liz Truss's watch. And we know, obviously, she's a, a sort of a potential leadership rival with Rishi Sunak for the, for the Tory leadership, if that ever comes around again. Obviously, this is going to be kind of a massive tick in her kind of column she obviously was having a difficult time with the, the Ukraine crisis and other things going on I just wondered Adam what you thought this was going to do for her trust's kind of personal ratings and kind of her the personal standings by being the person who's been able to secure this well that's true Alan obviously talk of a change in Tory leadership has quietened down in recent weeks for obvious reasons earlier in the year it was all people were talking about in Westminster now not so much the PM looks more comfortable in his position for now. However, you are correct in that this is a big moment for Liz Truss in her political career. Previous foreign secretaries failed to do it. And I think what it will do for Liz Truss is that when people are talking about who can take over from Johnson, who are the next potential leaders, there was a sense, I think, that there was no obvious agreed alternative. And that is one of the reasons why I think Johnson was able to cling on when the waters were particularly choppy. And I think there was a sense as well among MPs who weren't sure about Liz Truss that is she just all style and rhetoric? Can she deliver? And you mentioned the Ukraine crisis, but also there's been some disquiet among staunch Brexiteers within the Tory party about how she's handling the Northern Ireland Protocol. They want her to go a bit harder, be a bit firm with the EU. So I think when we eventually have that leadership contest, assuming there is one at some point, I think this is certainly something that Liz Truss can put right at the top of her CV, as it were. She can point to it and say, look what I've delivered, look what I've managed to do, which previous foreign secretaries, who are very senior people in the Tory party, not least the current prime minister, the former health secretary, Jeremy Hunt, failed to do. So So I think obviously Liz Truss won't talk about leadership, she won't talk about it in these terms, but there's no doubt that this, I think, is a significant addition to her leadership pitch should she go through with one in the future. You mentioned there, Adam, that kind of talk of a leadership contest has died down, understandably so, given the crisis that we're seeing in Ukraine continues to be a terrible situation. The sort of stuff that we're seeing out of the besieged city of Mariupol has been horrific this week. We saw the theatre hit with missile strikes and there was a story on AP News from two of the foreign journalists who were there recounting all of the kind of the horrors that have been witnessed in the past few weeks. You know, there's been talk of the sort of tentative peace talks this week and whether there's going to be potential ceasefire. What do you have made of that kind of element of it? And do you think that there is a chance for things to sort of calm down? Or, or some people think, is it a way of Russia potentially just using this time to sort of regroup their forces, given that they've been a- unable to take a lot of the cities that they've wanted to? I think there were two elements to that, Alan. Firstly, the absolutely appalling scenes we've seen in Ukraine in recent days were warned about by Western intelligence. So UK officials and their allies, their European US counterparts, had warned that they felt more discriminate, more brutal forms of attack by Vladimir Putin were likely. And sadly, those warnings are being borne out at the moment. There are also warnings, of course, of Putin perhaps resorting to chemical weapons, which clearly would be a dire further escalation. Let's hope that particular warning isn't borne out. And of course, 
as the attacks on Ukraine become more indiscriminate, as they become more brutal, as more civilians are being clearly targeted, I think NATO governments will come under more pressure to impose a no-fly zone. Obviously, at the moment, the collective position is that's a step too far. That would involve shooting down Russian planes. That would drag NATO into a direct military conflict with Russia. We don't want that. But if the attacks on civilians get more disgusting, more deadly, I think the pressure on Western governments to do more will increase. Also, when it comes to the peace talks, I guess the fact that talks are happening, you'd have to treat as a positive. However, talks aren't being accompanied by any sort of ceasefire. As these talks are happening, towns, villages and cities are continued to be flattened by Russian missiles, civilians continue to be killed. And also, what's Russia demanding in these negotiations? If, if Vladimir Putin, for example, wants these artificial republics in eastern Ukraine to be recognised as Russian territory, I, I can't see President Zelensky and Ukraine accepting that. What would it mean? Would Vladimir Putin want a pro-Russia regime to replace President Zelensky in Ukraine, for example? Of course, negotiations even taking place is a small step in a positive direction. But I don't think at this moment we have much reason to feel optimistic about those negotiations. Yeah, and, and Ellie, it's sort of hard to be particularly optimistic about being able to come to any sort of agreement with Vladimir Putin, given we had the bizarre situation of him claiming the West wants to cancel Russia in one of his uh, increasingly kind of unhinged speeches that he's been giving this week. And we've seen the rhetoric ramping up on both sides of, of the Atlantic as well, with, with Joe Biden agreeing that uh, he thought that Vladimir Putin was a, was a war criminal. Yeah, in comparison to Ukrainian President Zelensky's very eloquent speeches, Putin's are getting more and more bizarre. Like you said, that he said that the West would like to cancel Russia and that they were trying to dismember the Russian economy. There's, there's a lot of very colourful rhetoric in his speeches, and then it just keeps coming. Putin reacted very angrily to those Biden comments. Uh, the Biden comments are really interesting because they seemed very personal and they came very off the cuff. He was just asked by a reporter if he thought Putin was a war criminal. He said no, came back to say, actually, yeah, that guy, I think he's a war criminal. And then the White House is now saying that that was coming from the heart and that, you know, it was, uh, he was just felt so strongly about the matter. But that didn't seem to stop Russia, who've called it unacceptable and unforgivable. And we expect more unusual responses from them in the future. So when, when we're getting to this point, it's very hard to see how these two sides can be having a constructive conversation when we are going further and further down the path of just name calling effectively. I'm just thinking about President Biden's comments about Putin, it's probably worth taking a step back and looking at how the US relationship and regard of Putin has developed. I think President Bush, upon being elected, said he met with Vladimir Putin, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he looked into the soul of Vladimir Putin and saw an honest man. And there was a sense that upon Putin's election that, or perhaps the US and the West and Russia can have positive ties. Fast forward 20 or so years and now you have the US president calling him a war criminal rightly and relations between the West and Russia at the lowest point for a long time. Yeah and similarly the Obama administration wanted to improve relations with Russia and in fact I think um, Hillary Clinton presented 
an actual physical reset button to Sergei Lavrov back in uh, in uh, 2009. So obviously there was an attempt to, to have better relations. Unfortunately, um, due to the you know Putin's actions in Crimea and, and Georgia and, and elsewhere since then have, have meant that those have plummeted. Here in the UK, the Ukraine crisis is having a massive impact as we're seeing on, on energy costs. One of the things is the UK has been calling for is ending the reliance on Russian hydrocarbons. Obviously, a lot of Western Europe especially takes a lot of Russian oil and part of the way of sort of hitting Vladimir Putin's regime is to try and wean those countries off that. In order to do so, Boris Johnson embarked on a fairly hastily arranged trip to uh, the Middle East. He went to the UAE and then he also went to Saudi Arabia, sort of slightly controversially given what their human rights records and that sort of stuff, to try and get them and the other OPEC countries to kind of turn the taps on and produce more oil. On his arrival back, doesn't seem as though there's been any movement on that. I just wondered what you thought, Adam, whether you thought that was a kind of a, a successful trip, whether it was kind of worth going at all, and how that's going to play out, given that obviously our, our concerns over things like human rights. Well, as of this morning, as we speak, Alan, we haven't had a detailed readout of how those meetings went. However, it doesn't seem to have gone fantastically well. We haven't had a minister say that Saudi Arabia has agreed to up its oil production. And as you said, it was a highly controversial trip. Given Saudi Arabia's human rights record, just on Saturday, they executed 81 men. Three further men were executed while the PM was in the country. I think in terms of how it ranks with other countries in terms of number of executions, I believe that only China, Iran, Egypt and Iraq have executed more, at least in the year of 2020, which I think is the data I looked at this morning. So it, it was a highly controversial trip. But obviously the government is under huge pressure to do something massive on its energy mix. We only get, I think, less than 4% of gas and 8% of our oil from Russia. But we want to drive that number down because we want to be less dependent on Russian energy. Responding to criticism that the government shouldn't really be dealing with Saudi Arabia at all, never mind pursuing closer economic ties. The line is, and it was said by the Foreign Secretary Liz Trust this week, that look... We don't agree with Saudi Arabia on on everything, on its policies, on its use of the death penalty. However, Saudi Arabia, to quote the Foreign Secretary, isn't a global security threat in the way that Vladimir Putin is. Yeah, that's hardly a ringing endorsement of the country. And, And as you say, the fact is that whilst Boris Johnson was in the country, three further people were executed. So when the government says, as it does repeatedly, that it brings up issues of human rights when it goes to, to speak to Saudi Arabia, it doesn't appear that those talks have much of, a, of an impact, to be honest. And, and Labour, at Prime Minister's questions, Angela Rayner was saying that essentially the government was going cap in hand from one dictator to another. Obviously, global energy security is a pretty difficult thing to try and sort out. But do you think eventually the government is going to have to try and look for you know more domestic renewables as a supply so there is no reliance on a country like Saudi Arabia in the future as well? Well, next week, we're expecting to get this highly billed energy plan where the government is going to set out how it will, over time, create more domestic energy production. And we've been told there'll be a heavy focus on renewables, there'll be a heavy focus on nuclear energy. And Politics Home actually reported this week that one of the plans being looked at is reviving a previously proposed nuclear power plant in Anglesey in North Wales. We reported that this idea has the support of several cabinet ministers, including the PM himself, Kwasi Kwarten, the business secretary, Simon Hart, Welsh secretary. Obviously, it would be in his patch, as it were. So he's highly supportive. And Kit Malthouse, the policing minister. 
as well. The problem is, Alan, and you touched upon it in your question, that my understanding is even if we were to start digging and building that power plant in, in North Wales tomorrow, it would be at least 12 years, I'm told, before it's completed. So these are very long-term things we're talking about, whereas at the moment, the pressure on the government is to ease the burden on households when it comes to energy bills now in the short term. And that's where the, the pressure is on the government. It's fantastic if we have these brilliant long-term plans, but Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor and, and the PM are under pressure to do something much, much sooner than that. Yeah, absolutely. And as you touched on, as well as the energy strategy next week, there is going to be the spring statement, which soon I call come to the Commons. I think he kind of expected it or kind of hoped that it was going to be a fairly low key event, a kind of a staging post between the last autumn's comprehensive spending review and this autumn's budget. But obviously, as you say, the fact is that the cost of living crisis is hitting people really hard now. And there's a call for them to do more. Earlier this year, he talked about offering a sort of £200 loan on energy bills, which obviously was widely kind of derided. You reported that he's been speaking to MPs to try and sound out what they want him to do more on, essentially. And what was the kind of the, the feeling that you got from those MPs? What are they looking for from the Chancellor when he gets on his feet in the Commons next week? That's right. So I understand, and we reported, that the Chancellor had a series of meetings with Conservative MPs Last week, I suspect meetings are happening this week as well, taking feedback from MPs on what they'd like to see in that spring statement. Now it's been briefed and I understand that the Chancellor won't be announcing anything major in regards to cost of living next week. However, it's possible that he includes, we like to call it a rabbit being pulled from the hat when it comes to budgets and spring statements. It's possible that he might do something on fuel. For example, that's something lots of Tory MPs have been pushing for. It's something that the Sun newspaper has been campaigning on. But those coming back to those chats he had with Tory MPs last week, one of the MPs I spoke to who met with the Chancellor said, to paraphrase, and of course you can read this at politicshome.com, is that his constituents are terrified. They're genuinely scared as they look at their bills, as their bills start to double, start to triple. Hopefully the cost of energy doesn't continue to rise, but it looks like as we head into the summer and the autumn, it will. As I understand it, the Chancellor received pleas from Tory MP saying, please do something in your spring statement next week. Yeah, and as well as his own MPs calling for that, obviously Labour have been asking for a lot more action to be taken. Earlier I spoke to the Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury, Pat McFadden, and I've begun by asking him what his party exactly wants to see the government bring in. Well, the cost of living crisis is at the top of people's agenda and you've got several things coming together to make this really really difficult for households you've got general inflation you've got particular inflation on energy bills where people are just being shocked at the new statements of what their energy is going to cost coming through prices rising at the pumps of course almost on a on a daily basis so you've got that set of things and some of those are common to a number of countries around the world but what makes the UK stand out is the decision by the government to press ahead with a series of personal tax rises. Right at the moment, this is biting deepest. And in particular, I'm thinking of freezing the personal allowances, which has turned out to be a bigger tax rise than people thought because of inflation. So freezing those has a, has a bigger impact over the next couple of years. And also the national insurance rise that is piling pain onto households at precisely the moment when the other features of the cost of living crisis 
are biting deepest. So what we'd like to see is the government decide not to go ahead with the personal tax increase, the next increase next week, but also to beef up the package of help for uh, people with energy bills, which has been, it didn't look very good when it was announced about a month ago, and it's been rendered completely obsolete by the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, I just, it's not just the sort of total bills for gas it's things like heating oil is now at sort of three four times the price that it was just only a few weeks ago do you think the government has not reacted quick enough to these kind of changes people are unable to to heat their homes now and essentially that is something that this this 200 pound loan idea is not even going to touch the sides for a lot of households i think the package looked very underwhelming when it was announced the 200 pound loan has a lot of flaws in it. It was something that was kicking around for a while before the Chancellor announced it. To be honest, Labour looked at that and thought it wasn't good enough, so we didn't suggest that. We suggested a series of measures which would give people 200 pounds off their bills, not through a loan, but but as a, a proper reduction in their bills with more help for the poorest families and paid for by a combination of the increase in VAT receipts that the Chancellor is enjoying because of higher inflation, and also a one-off windfall levy on the oil and gas companies who are enjoying stratospheric profits mm. through these global price rises at the moment. And the Chancellor set his face against all that and went for this idea of a loan for people, and it will mean less help to people. And it's done in a it's done in a less fair way because he's not touching in terms of revenue raising the people who are making the most out of the current crisis. So I think the package was underwhelming when it was announced and has been rendered completely obsolete by the latest boost to prices that we're going to see from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, I saw you brought this up at Treasury Questions this week and you again asked about this this windfall tax. Why do you think that Sunak and the Treasury are so set against it? To be honest, I'm not sure because it's not some unprecedented demands. George Osborne did this 10 years ago. Gordon Brown did something similar when he was Chancellor. So both Labour and Conservative Chancellors of the past have seen in specific circumstances where there's an unusual price spike, the case for a one-off levy. And the arguments about investment that the Chancellor has wheeled out in terms of not doing this, some of them were made 10 years ago when George Osborne did it, and that didn't prove to be the case. But also, when you look at the annual statements of the companies announcing these huge profits, they're not talking about using these profits for extra investment. They're talking about using them for increased dividend payments and share buybacks. So I think his case against this is unconvincing. And instead, where is he finding the revenue for what he's doing? Presumably, the revenue he's finding is from somewhere else, from general taxpayers or from borrowing. He's not finding it from the people who are making the most out of these enormously high global energy prices. Obviously, like I said, you you brought this up at at Treasury Questions. There was a a long list of Tory MPs who also stood up to sort of criticise the measures that have been announced so far and call for all sorts of measures to be taken by the government. seems to Sunak doesn't want to enact any of them so far. Do you think the government's finding themselves a bit out of step in this situation? I think they are. If you take a a step back from the individual measures that people have called for, what you get is just a sense of a very cautious and underwhelming response Mm. 
from the Chancellor. The truth is he's, he's locked himself in. When he announced the national insurance rise and the freezing of personal allowances last year, things looked quite different. Yeah, Petrol wasn't at the current price it was. Energy prices hadn't gone up by £700 a, a year with probably more rises later in October of this year. There were a lot of factors that were different. Inflation was lower. All of those things have changed since he announced this. But he seems determined to go ahead. And the government's justification for going ahead with the tax increases is to pay for the NHS and social care. But when you look at it, they've got big increases in receipts that uh, mean they're bringing in more. The fiscal Mm. position looks a bit better than it did when he first announced this. But also the Treasury is telling anyone who will listen that they are bringing these tax increases in now because they want to cut taxes before the election. Yeah. That looks pretty cynical. Yeah. It looks as though this is not being done in the best interests of the fiscal position or of the public services, but it's been done to chime with the Tory election grid. And that's the worst reason to be imposing a broad-based series of tax increases on household incomes right at the moment when the bite from inflation and energy price rises is at its deepest. You talked there about Sunak sort of locking himself in. He's repeatedly tried to tell us that he's a fiscal conservative. He sort of repeatedly repeats that mantra. But the IFS, I think just this morning on on Thursday, said that Sunak and Boris Johnson have put taxes up by 2% of GDP in just two years. It took Gordon Brown and and Tony Blair 10 years to do that. You know, it does seem like there's a, a stark gap between his kind of rhetoric about the sort of chancellor he is and the actual chancellor that he that he's enacting. Yeah, I don't know who the Chancellor is convincing with these constant hymns of praise to Thatcherism. We saw it when he did the budget in the autumn where he announced the biggest series of tax increases we'd seen for years, the tax burden to be at its highest level for 70 years, and then a sort of disclaimer mm. at the end of the budget where he says, well, I don't really believe in all this. I believe I, you know, I'm a tax-cutting Thatcher. And then we have the Mays lecture a few weeks ago where he says the same thing. The truth is, maybe in his mind, he is this Thatcherite tax-cutting chancellor, but in his deeds, he's closer to Ted Heath. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing a combination of tax rises and inflation growing, reminiscent of some decades ago. And there's a phrase in the Bible, something like, uh, by their deeds, ye shall know them. And that's what I think people have got to look at. Through the actions of the chancellor, I believe he has forfeited the right for the Conservative Party to be considered as a tax-cutting party. As the IFS have pointed out, this Chancellor has raised taxes more in two years than the previous Labour government did in 10. And there's an underlying reason for that. The Conservatives have become a high-tax party because they're a low-growth party. If you strip out the bungee jump impact of the COVID pandemic, where GDP collapsed in 2020 and then bounced back in 2021, If you strip out those extraordinary effects, what you have is a decade of very anemic growth since they came into office in 2010, averaging about 1.8% compared to Labour's 2.3% when we were in government. And when you look forward, both the Bank of England and the OBR are predicting pretty anemic growth in the future. So it's the failure to grow the economy, which has hit our national prosperity and is now really hitting the prosperity of household finances 
And the Conservatives have become a high-tax party because they're a party of low economic growth. I mean, obviously, in the current climate, the Ukraine crisis is having a massive impact on a lot of these things. Obviously, there were existing problems that have been kind of turbocharged by the crisis in Ukraine. It led to Boris Johnson deciding to go on this hastily arranged trip to Saudi Arabia to talk about trying to get them to the OPEC countries to increase oil production. It doesn't seem as though he managed to have much success there. I think the the readout from the Saudi government didn't even mention oil at all. What did you make of that trip? Do you think that they were sort of overambitious? And, and what do you kind of make of the idea of going to the Saudis to try and help, as he said, sort of wean off Russian hydrocarbons? Well, there's two points I'd make about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Firstly, in a geopolitical sense, I think everyone's going to have to reassess some of the assumptions we've had. In the past 30 years, we've seen here the resurrection of the ideology of dead empires in trying to go back down this road of a sphere of influence where uh, President Putin wants to dictate the fate of the neighbouring countries, doesn't really accept that they have an independent right to choose their own path, to choose the international associations that they want to form part of. And in Germany, they've They've used the phrase turning point, but this is a, a, a turning point, and I think it is. And so we're all going to have to reassess some of the things that we've taken for granted in recent decades. But in particular, in terms of what you ask about energy, the conclusion has to be that we press ahead further with the transition to methods of generating energy which decrease our reliance on oil and gas in the future, because you've seen the problem that the UK to some extent, some other European countries to a greater extent, have had in their dependence on Russian oil and gas. So you've got our Prime Minister jetting off to get the begging bowl out for the Saudi leaders to increase production. But really the answer must be to press ahead with renewable energy, to press ahead with clean energy, and to decrease this kind of dependence because when you're trying to put sanctions on Russia, which countries have come together to do in a very determined way, the big question mark over it all is, well, what if you need to keep buying Russian oil and gas? So we can't find ourselves in this position again in the future. And that means, I think, a greater focus on the transition to greener energy generation in the future. And that's really the way forward rather than just scratching around trying to find a different source for the hydrocarbons upon which we depend at the moment. The government are also due to put out an energy strategy next week as well. Boris Johnson has talked about not just increasing renewables, but also a lot more nuclear. I think it's kind of widely accepted that you are going to have to have a lot more nuclear in the mix with renewables if you are to wean ourselves off imported gas. So what's Labour's position on, on, on nuclear? Do you think that has to be part of the strategy? Nuclear, of course, has to be part of this. That is one form of renewable fuel which decreases your dependence on oil and gas. So of course that's got to be part of the mix. But So too does solar, so too does wind. All of these have to be part of the mix. And I've thought it quite desperate in recent weeks watching the Prime Minister at Prime Minister's Questions trying to blame lack of progress in nuclear on the Labour government that left office 12 years ago. It's just ridiculous. You might get away with blaming the previous government for a year or two after you take office. But after four elections in 12 years, that is pretty threadbare. The government, 
have been in office for a long time. Well, I thought that was interesting. Yesterday we had um, Lindsay Hoyle at Prime Minister's Questions. For the, I've never seen him do this before. He sort of rebuked Dominic Raab for sort of going back and talking about f- former Labour governments and going back sort of, he said, you can't keep going back 12 years into the past. We need to talk about what's going on now. I thought that was quite interesting. I don't know if you, if you saw that yeah, intervention. Yeah, I, I was there in the, in the chamber for Prime Minister's Questions. And speakers will pick up, you know, yesterday it was Dominic Raab and Angela Rayner, but speakers will pick up whoever's doing that because it's meant to be Prime Minister's questions. But there is another point here, just about the length of time Mm. that the government's been in office. And Boris Johnson likes to portray the Conservative government as a new government only elected in 2019, but they've been in office for 12 years. That's true in terms of the levelling up debate, who did the levelling down. It's also true in terms of energy policy. So whatever's going on, the Prime Minister and the other ministers have to take responsibility. I mean, let's take this issue of um, all these energy companies that have gone bust in the last year. You know, the Conservatives have been in charge of the regulation of this market for 12 years. And what you had was too great a dependency on spot prices, too little capital being held by those companies, and therefore too little resilience when things got rough. You know, that is the responsibility of the government that's presided over it for 12 years, not anybody else. And that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks so much to my colleagues Adam Payne and Anna Langford. Our editor has been Laura Silver. You can follow them on Twitter at AdamPayne26, at Eleanor Mia, and at LauraSilver underscore. Thanks as well to this week's excellent guest, Pat McFadden. And most of all, thanks again to all of you for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcast to keep up to date. And if you've enjoyed it, then please leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, reach out to us on Twitter at PoliticsHome or email us via news at politicshome.com. And if you want more great reporting and analysis from Politics Home and our colleagues at The House magazine, you can subscribe to our daily newsletters. Just click on the sign-up page in the top right-hand corner of the website. But for now, have a great weekend and be sure to listen again next week. I've been Alan Tolhurst and this has been The Rundown.